Trigger warning. The following interview contains content that may be harmful or traumatizing to certain audiences. I never imagined my journey would inspire people all over the world. My name is Nema and I'm from Zambia. So I love the Dear Future Wifey podcast. For me to see people being so real, so honest, and so true about the real situations in life. Hey, I'm Natalie from Belgium and I would like to, to say thank you. I value your content because it is Christ-centered. You have set a standard in love. Dear Future Wifey Podcast has um, opened my understanding. I highly recommend that everyone, whether you're single, you're married, you're divorced, you're widowed, everyone to go follow this podcast. Continue with me as I discover, uncover, and recover love. I'm Latera Sar Whitfield, and welcome to the Dear Future Wifey Podcast. Welcome to the Dear Future Wifey Podcast. I'm your host, Latera Sar Whitfield. Listen, if you haven't subscribed to the Dear Future Wifey Podcast, what are you waiting for? Stop shacking up with us and hit that subscription button and subscribe. Also, turn on the notification bell so you'll be notified about upcoming uh, episodes. This is our second to the last episode of season two. Thank you so much for rocking with us. Uh, this has been a very life-changing um, season. I mean, I've gotten a lot of feedback about how powerful this season has been. Y'all have watched me transparently walk through this journey of singleness as I manifest my future wifey. And this season was definitely lit. Um, so thank you, thank you, thank you for rocking with us. This month marks the 20th anniversary of Sexual Assault Awareness Month. Sexual Assault Awareness Month is designed to stop sexual violence and to support survivors. Now, today's guest is a dear friend. If you saw the episode of Vow to Abstinence, I mentioned her as the one who prayed that Pastor Conway would say something that would change the trajectory of my sexual sin. I was attending his service that morning and I spoke to her on my way to church and she asked me, Latarius, are you practicing abstinence? I said, absolutely not. She says, well, I'm gonna pray that Pastor Conway says something in service today that convicts your heart. And I was like, you know, Pastor Conway ain't gonna say nothing to me. But watch the episode and you'll see what, what that's about. But did you know that one in five women have experienced sexual assault at least one time in their life? That's a very devastating statistic. Now, today's guest, through personal experience, knows all too well that damaging statistic. She's a life coach and mental health counselor. Welcome to the Dear Future Wifey podcast, my homie, Elsa Christie. Oh, Lord. <laughs> Elsa, Elsa, Elsa. I, you know, you know, on the Dear Future Wifey podcast, we keep it lit. And yes. we live intentionally and transparently. And I know that I don't have to give you that disclaimer because you exude that. Um, now, I brought Elsa on the podcast because today or this month, April, is Sexual Abuse Awareness Month. Um, so let me just go ahead and tell y'all now that um, this is a trigger warning. If you, you may be triggered by watching this episode, uh, Elsa has an amazing, amazing testimony, but it's a testimony that when I even hear her speak about, it, it's hard for me to even listen to it. 
but uh, I have to continue to be present while she is sharing a testimony because there's nothing worse than, you know, someone sharing something intimate and painful. And then you like, I, I don't want to hear that. That's, that's, that's crazy. So uh, those that have experienced sexual abuse, um, just be aware that this episode is going to go pretty deep, go pretty deep. I want to do this episode with you, Elsa, because I did a live a couple of months ago. I did a testimony service, and I was shocked by the amount of women who joined the testimony service. And for some reason, they just started speaking about their their sexual abuse that they encountered. And I mean, like I had like six people and four of them experienced sexual abuse. And I was like, what in the world? And it was it was so hard for me to listen to. And I know that on my journey, me not knowing who my future wifey is, that my future wifey may be someone that has uh, overcome uh, the pain of sexual abuse. So I, I, that's the reason why I have you on this podcast, uh, for that reason, as well as honoring uh, this month to the victims that have survived and overcomers of sexual abuse. So, all right, let me get myself ready because... Uh, you're gonna need. You're gonna need it. Why are you gonna go there? I will go there, absolutely. So Elsa, tell a little bit about yourself. Um, I already introduced you as a mental health counselor. Mm-hmm. Um, what got you into that field? My whole story, my whole life story, all of the things that I've been through and the experiences, the experiences that I've had, they literally forced me essentially to go to a place where I felt that I needed to be able to help others who've gone through the things I've gone through. While you were going through what you were going through, um, did you feel like there was no one that you could reach out to? I tried to on several different um, times. And unfortunately, the help that I went to was not always the best help. And so sometimes when you don't have the best help, you have to try to become the person that you needed. So when you say not the best help, elaborate on that. I went to a therapist who was unfortunately, he was really good, but he gave me some really bad advice at a point in time in my life, and I ended up re-traumatizing myself severely. Um, And, you know, I went to pastoral counselors uh, because, you know, I'm a woman of faith, and it's very important for me to make sure that whoever I speak to believes in the Lord and all that. And a lot of the times, you know, pastors and, and people in church don't understand trauma. They don't understand the clinical side of things. And so they'll give you biblical advice, but then it does not really help you when it comes to renewing your mind when you have gone through an extreme amount of um, abuse and, uh, you know, just trauma. So Elsa, take us back to the beginning. How, how, uh, take us back to the beginning. Okay. Well, I'm uh, originally from Cameroon, West Africa. I was born um, there to a lovely family, huge family. I, you know, seemed, I, I felt that I had a pretty good upbringing, fairly normal upbringing, um, until I started to really understand who my family was and what they do and, and all of that. And so I, um, you know, my mom passed away when I was about nine years old. And my mom and dad were never together. So my mom was a young woman who got pregnant at 16 years old. She tried to abort me twice, didn't work. So God really, really needed me yeah, here on this earth, he right? Had a plan. He had a huge plan for my life. And so um, she, you know, had, was with my dad. My dad was significantly older than her. And um, she passed away. And when she passed away, I ended up going and living with my father. 
And my father, you know, was just a young man doing his thing, sowing his wild oats all over the place, just being a little crazy. But he had married a woman and uh, were finally going to be settling down and having this life that was uh, different than what it was in Cameroon. And so we moved to Japan and I had a stepbrother and a half brother and we were living a very beautiful and fun life. And um, it was hard adjusting a little bit from being from Cameroon to living in Japan, totally different place, but I was having a great time. Um, the one thing about my family though, that people didn't understand was that there's a lot of abuse in my home. And so while everything looked great on the outside and we were traveling different places, here I am in boarding school in Australia and, you know, going to all, living in Hawaii and doing all these things. Um, people did not realize that my dad was not only an alcoholic, but he was also physically and sexually abusive. And so um, he was the type of man that, of course, unfortunately molested me since I was a very young girl and um, was a very, he would get very angry. And when he got angry, he would beat you really bad. And so unfortunately, I always seemed to be the, the person that took a lot of his beatings. Um, I don't know if it was because I reminded him of my mom, whatever it was, I have no idea, but he just took out his anger a lot on me. At what age? It's, this started when I was like maybe five years old, but it mainly was really bad when I was around, like after, right after my mom died. It was almost like he could really express all of his anger out or take out his anger on me when she passed away. At what age were you when she passed? I was nine years old. Yeah. So this father was left to take care of you, your brother. How many, how many kids were in the house? Well, it was just me. I was an only child of my mom and dad, but for my dad and stepmom, he had my little brother and then my stepbrother as well. So it was, yeah. Did the other kids get beaten? Um, my little brother did a little bit, yes. But you got the brunt of it. I did. Why? Because you're the oldest or you were the girl? You know, I think it was because I was, I was the girl. I think my father had a lot of anger towards women and he hated women for whatever reason. And so he seemed to just take that out on me. And I think I was his first child. So I think he probably wanted a boy and he had not gotten that. And so, um, you know, in our, in our kind of like, uh, in our country, boys are a big legacy. They're a big deal. And right. so I was the, the girl. <laughs> and unfortunately yeah. for whatever reason, I just seemed to always get the, the, Oh, the shorter than the stick with when he came to him. So, yeah. All right. Fast forward. So um, your father started sexually assaulting you at what age? I was about four or five years old. Four or five years mm -hmm. old. And you can remember that. Yeah, I can remember. I have vivid memories of things. Ever since I started going to therapy and getting the help that I needed, my memory started coming back. And I was like, oh, my gosh, this happened for far longer than I thought that it did. What, what did you think it started? I always thought maybe it was like my teenage years or something like that, you know, but it wasn't. It was way when I was a young girl. So, yeah. So, um, unfortunately, he was a pedophile and, um, and just a, an abuser. Um, my father and my stepmom got a divorce, and we uh, went back to Cameroon. And as soon as I got back to Cameroon, it was within a few days that I was raped when I was there. Um, by a man who was in his mid-30s, probably older. Um, my father was dating his, uh, her, the man's sister, and I got, I got raped. And I tried to explain to him what happened, and he really didn't care. It was, it's, a, it's a complicated story, but he really just didn't care. I would understand later on that that was part of the plan for, uh, to prepare me to be taken to this man in Michigan. Okay? Yeah. 
what it, <laughs> my life is crazy. I know, man. You said that was a part of the plan to get, yeah. Because you know, I know your story, so I'm yes. trying to, I'm trying to allow you to just tell it. Yeah. Because asking it is just, <laughs> I don't know if I'm capable of. Just yeah. asking you these questions. That's why when you even told me the story before, I just let you talk. Mm-hmm. So I'll be chiming in very infrequently. Right. Um, but go ahead. So you said it's a part of the plan to basically groom you yes. to this transition that your father was preparing you for. And what was that transition? That transition was me going to the United States to be a, a child prostitute and to be somebody's house wife or whatever, essentially. So um, he trafficked me to a man in Michigan. And, and you were at what age? What I age? was 13 at this age. 13 years old. Mm-hmm. So he he had an r- arrangement with somebody in Michigan. Yes. Uh, sent you to Michigan. Now this guy is your what? My uncle. So he prepped me to remind me that this is my uncle. And I'm like, we don't really have any family in America. Like, I, all my family was either in Europe or in Cameroon. So it was a little confusing. But I'm just, as a child, you're just excited. You know, I had visited Hawaii, like, one time and uh, Massachusetts another time, but I'd never lived in America. So you watch all these movies and you're thinking, I'm going to be in America. I'm going to have all this fun. I'm going to go to Disneyland. And so I had this grandiose, beautiful, fun idea of what my life was going to be like. And I knew that he was going to be coming shortly after that. And so I get there and this uncle of mine, you know, picks me up and and he seems pretty pleasant and nice and he lives in a beautiful home and has a a young child and a woman who I still don't know who she was. If it was just a baby's mom, wife, girlfriend, no idea. But she was infrequently in the home. And so uh, within a few weeks, he lets me know that I need to call him my dad. And then that's when the confusion begins because I'm like, you're first my uncle, now you're my dad. I just don't know what's going on here. Right. And so uh, the abuse started very, very early on in that home. My role was to take care of the little girl. Um, I was to, you know, take care of him sexually um, and just, you know, just be essentially like a, a girlfriend wife to him at a very young age. So, yeah. And the woman in the household was in agreement with it. Yeah. Yeah. And so would she be present while you were no, she wasn't. It was so strange. Um, it seemed almost like she was an abuse survivor as well. Right. It was just weird. I, I rarely ever saw her, um, but I knew that she was there and with him. You know what I mean? Like, so, and I don't know if she was when it was working. I have no idea what that was. No clue to this day. And so you you went through that from age 13 to what before you transitioned from him? It was actually a very short period of time. I know it was between three to six months. I was not there that long, by the grace of God. Um, so one day I literally just felt this unction to leave, to just run, right? And I, I don't know what, of course it was the Holy Spirit, but he had always told me I couldn't leave the house, so I wasn't in school, nothing. I was pretty much in the home all the time. But I knew that I was supposed to run this day. And so I did, and I just took off running uh, and just went up the street in Ann Arbor, Michigan. A police officer pulls me over, and he's like, what are you doing? Why aren't you in school? And, of course, my first language is French, so I had a little bit of an accent, and he's just kind of, like, wondering, like, there's something a little bit different about this child, you know? And so the more he dug, he clearly realized that this is not a good situation, and um, I got put in foster care immediately after that. So at 13 years old mm-hmm. you're in the foster care system um take us through that 
<laughs> Are you sure you really want me to go there? Yeah, we've been there before, Elsa. So yeah. uh, this is going to bless somebody because what you're, what you're looking at is someone that overcame some of the most horrific um, violations ever. And little do you know, like hearing your story about um, the bad apples in the foster care system encourages me to be one of the good apples and right. and to encourage other people to step up and love on these kids and not cause any more abuse in their lives. Exactly. Uh, so um, talk about it. Well, I got put in the foster care system. Uh, the very first home that I was in, um, in Michigan, everything seemed okay at first. But then the foster mom's son, who was over 18, started coming over to the house. Right. And um, he ended up raping me and one of the other girls in the home. And um, it it was just so, so sad and unfortunate because I had this beautiful hope that I was going to um, be going to a safe haven. Right. And um, it wasn't. And so we had to go to trial and do all these different things. Of course, they moved me to a respite home immediately after that. And... um, you know, as time went by, they eventually uh, allowed my dad to come and get me. <laughs> the foster care system gave me to my father. At the time when I had been with this man that was my quote-unquote uncle, I didn't really understand trafficking, right? So right. I just knew that I was sent to this home and this man ended up doing whatever he did. So um, I think my dad kind of played that whole role like, oh, he was. I didn't know that he was going to be like this. This is an uncle. This is family, whatever. Um, and so he got away with it. They told him, as long as you have a home and a school that she can go to, you can have her back, which he got me back. Well, unfortunately, shortly after he got me, he was the same abusive man that he had always been. Anything that I did, I would either get beat um, in my in my, the home with my dad. I was essentially the same thing that I was to that man in Michigan. I cooked all the meals. I did all his laundry, um, everything. I at a young age, I just had to become this essentially wife and, and, and mother to an adult man to that I shouldn't have been responsible for. That was not something that I should have had to do at such a young age. Right. Um, and so, um, my father ended up beating me really bad one day. And typically he would have me stay a couple of days. If he hit me and in, were visible signs, um, I'd usually stay home, but it was like, he was leaving for something and I had to go to school still. So my math teacher obviously saw that there was something a little bit different um, with my face that day. And so she called CPS and I got put in foster care system um, again. again. <laughs> yeah. And in a home that was, you know, close to my father's actually. And um, his what are the odds of that? So you got put in a home close to your father's. Yes. Yeah. And what happened? And so in this home, um, the, let me just say this. The amount of perversion that is in this world and then also in a lot of these homes, it's absolutely disgusting. Um, My foster, this foster dad that I had, they clearly only did this to be able to exploit young girls. Yes. Um, There were four girls in the home. The wife was very aware that her husband had some sort of perversion. They had some weird, sick issues. And he would, of course, make me and the girls do sexual favors on him for money or just before we left for school at night, he would be in our beds. Just a lot of things that no child who is coming <laughs> to get help should have to go through. And um, so we got removed from that home. And um, 
uh, I actually ended up in a mental institution because I tried to hurt myself. I tried to commit suicide after being in that home. Um, of course, then my dad was able to say, see, she's a troubled child. Um, she was the one who hit herself that day and all these different things. Um, and so uh, eventually I got out of that and they sent me back to my dad's. <laughs> yeah. Three times they sent me back to him. <laughs> and so we moved to a different area. of. But before, before we talk about moving to a different area of town, um, my father had to go to deployment because he's in, in the military and uh, works for the government. And we were staying in, uh, in a, I was staying in another home. And unfortunately, in that home, I met this young girl at school and she was just like, you know, I didn't really have many friends. Okay. Like you're, you're from Africa. You're trying to get over your accent and all these different things. People make fun of you because of the way you look and all these things. And, um, I met this young girl and I had my first sleepover. Like I, I was so excited that I'm like going to sleepover. It's going to be great. Life is going to be awesome. And, um, the girl's brother um, began to groom me and a couple of the other girls that were at that sleepover. I would later find out that he was a felon, and so he couldn't get a job. And so, um, well, he could get a job, but it was not going to be a right. lucrative one. And right. so what he would do is he would use his little sister to... Go and scout. Yeah. And um, so... My lunch breaks, I tell people, uh, during that period of time in my life, look like me. Um, Being the fast girl because of what you were. What, you posted a picture one day. I did. That <laughs> sent tears down my face. That was that was last year, wasn't it? Yeah. And then uh, I called you and I said, Elsa, I said, are you okay today? And you was like, this is like the anniversary of this moment and this, this, this. I said, if you just want to come by and just, just have somebody just be in your presence, I don't need you going off the deep end. And you was like, yeah, this is real heavy. And then you, you came by and you brought some food and you just sat back and just sat there. And I was just on my computer and you just sat on the couch and, and, uh, cried and then just, it was just, yeah, it was a lot of emotion that day, um, remembering that time and the times when he would, he bought specific clothes for me. So my backpack were packed with those clothes. And of course, during lunch break, I had to rush to the bathroom, get changed real fast. And he'd pick me up in the front and then we would go to wherever different people's homes or, uh, parking lots that he wanted me to go do the things that I did. And so, um, I would, you know, get my money, whether it was $20, 30, 50, whatever, 100, and do the sexual favor and uh, give the money to him. You know, to my young friends, they're like, oh, my God, Elsa, you've got a, you've got a boyfriend. You know, they're like, you know, in high school, these young girls are like, they think it's they, so cool that I'm dating older this older guy. Yeah. And I'm just like trying to pretend that, yeah, it's, it's my boyfriend. And, of course, that's what, you know, he, he would tell me to say because at that time that was a cool thing to do, yeah. right? But what I what really, and I, I really, really hate this, it's that people saw me leaving for my lunches at least two to four times a week, that I would change my clothes and, and come back and then dress a certain, another certain way. I was tardy a lot, but no one said anything. People never found it odd that a grown man in his 30s was picking me up during my lunches and taking me somewhere and bringing me back. It, it's like abuse is so normal now. Prostitution, all these different trafficking, it's become so normal that we don't even question things when they look a little bit strange. 
Because I guess they feel like it's none of my business. She just being fast. She just being, and they put all that. That's why I used to get so upset about the the whole R. Kelly situation. Yeah. Because, um, and I talked about this on my Facebook page, is that R. Kelly came to one of my plays and in Chicago, and he and I were in talks about doing um, You Saved Me, the stage play, and just being around him. And, I mean, it would have been a very lucrative uh, career move for me, but – I was like, I went to his concert and I would try to, it was time to go backstage. I was going backstage. I had my daughter with me. Why, why I had my daughter at an R. Kelly concert makes no sense to me. I just didn't even know what, what, it, what, it, what it was. And I was sitting there like, oh my God, I'm subjecting my daughter to this crazy stuff. But uh, they said that she couldn't come backstage. And I was like, why? And, and they said, because of the, the court case. And I was like, wow, this is this is really, really real. Mm-hmm. And so I had a I had a moment. I had a decision to make of am I going to continue going forward with this deal that we were talking about uh, doing the stage play, um, which would try to help clean up his image a little bit. Or would I just, you know, take a stand for Christ and for uh, young girls and say, no, I don't want no parts in this. And God told me to take a stand. And mm-hmm. I took a stand and I walked away from that. And wow. uh, at that point, like R. Kelly was somebody I like. That was one of my favorite artists. I was like, oh, my God, I love his music. I grew up listening to it. It was like it was it was, it was amazing. But like you said, abuse looked so, so, so normal that even when he was dating Aaliyah, no one ever said, hey, this is a problem. Exactly. R. Kelly just has a right. He just writes a song for her, have her singing. And everybody's saying age ain't nothing but a number. So that's what made it so OK for these young girls in high school to be dating these grown men. Exactly. Because I used to see that in my high school. And when when, you know, the young girls, the girls in, on my age level didn't even some of those girls didn't have no interest in guys mm-hmm. our age because they was like, oh, no, I got me an older guy. He's 28 years old. Exactly. And she's 17 and 16. And, and it's like, you know, and I used to always say, well, he only want one thing, you know. <laughs> and the reality was so, so, you know, it was just, it began to be normal because you put it on the radio. You have Aaliyah, this beautiful girl, singing about it. She's with R. Kelly, this superstar. Right. And it made it normal. But when he came to my show in Chicago, I saw all these young girls around him and – they weren't allowed to even speak to me. And I walked up to one of them and I was like, hey, did you enjoy the show? And she looked at me and she turned her head. And I was like, okay, she stuck up. And I went to another girl. Mm. I was like, hey, did you enjoy the show? She looked at me and turned her head. And I was like, these girls got problems. And the bodyguard pulled me aside. He said, he said, Latarius, they're not allowed to speak to another man in his mm. presence. Wow. And I was like, what kind of crazy stuff is this? Some weird cult. <laughs> I, I I just, I had no idea. And then mm-hmm. I went to the video shoot. Prior to that, I went to the video shoot to flirt the remix with T.I.T. Pain and R. Kelly. And I just, I just saw, like, I was, I was new to this world. You know, mm-hmm. I was, you know, I've been touring shows across the country probably a couple of years at that point. But just to see that and see these girls being enslaved uh, to the power of this man, it was, it was, it was very eye opening. Mm-hmm. And to hear you, you know, as this young girl leaving during your lunch breaks to service these men and no one ever said, baby, can I talk to you for a minute? Right. Where are you going? Right. What's going on with you? How, how normalized did that become for you after being your, this, this male figure in your life, your father, was your father at any point ever your hero? No, never. So even as a young girl, you never looked up to your father. No, maybe when I was like really, really small, but that looking up to a man, to my father, was shattered the first time that he touched me. 
And so even at a young age, you knew that that wasn't right. Yeah. But you become silenced. A part of you literally just kind of separates itself because you know that there's this pain that you're experiencing and there's a secret that you have to tell, you have to keep now because you're, you're feeling shame, you're feeling guilt. There are all these emotions going on and part of you has to just kind of either compartmentalize or just become two completely different people in order to survive. I knew that if I said anything about my dad, I would not be okay. You're, you're a teenage prostitute. Like, who are you living with at this time? I'm living with a family that I was able to kind of stay with because of my dad. Yeah, while he was gone. All right, so your, your father was, you say gone, he was in the military, so mm-hmm. he would take these deployments, and yes. he would leave you with this family. And so what, did they not know what was going on? Or did you try to tell them, or were they in on the whole thing as well? <laughs> Well, the family was here illegally as well. Oh, okay. So that was a, that's a whole different conversation. All right, yeah. mm-hmm. right. <laughs> uh, so at this time, you're in high school. You're what, 16, 15? That picture about, that you posted, you were Yeah, I'm what? about 15 years old. That mm-hmm. picture you posted on Facebook, you were 15. Yes. Um, mm, you were smiling in that picture. I was. Tell me, tell me what was behind that smile, and how were you able to smile? A lot of pain was behind that smile. Most of my life, I had to learn how to pretend that everything was okay in order to survive. Because if I, for one second, really, really looked at what was happening in my life, I would continue to do what I was doing, which at that time, I probably tried to commit suicide four times. And so for me, acting like you're fine was a part of the whole plan, part of the whole game. So... At 15 years old, you had committed, try, attempted suicide four times. Yes, by then well, it was four times. And what did they do when they, they just looked at you as a problem child? Did they put you on medication? Did they put you, like, what? what they didn't what? put me on any medication. They just thought that I was, I was a problem child. Oh, she's just misbehaving. My, of course, my dad telling them things like she's got mental health issues or mental illness. She's, she's got problems, you know. She hits herself. No, you pushed me down the stairs. <laughs> like, this... <laughs> Like, you punched me in the face. Like, I don't have, I'm not punching myself in the face. But he would make up all these ridiculous things that continued to essentially affirm that there was something wrong with me. Right. right? And the crazy thing is that while, although I was going through all of these things, I was good at school. Academically, I did just fine. You know, I had to compartmentalize the painful things that I was going through because I still there was something in me that still wanted to just survive and, and, and live, right? And be great. And be good, yeah. It, it, the greatness actually is a part of my DNA. So it's almost as if, although I was going through painful things, God was not going to allow me to not be great because I was going through pain. Mm-mm-mm. He was just not going to do that. So what was your faith like at that young age? Like, did you believe in God? Did you, did you feel like God deserted you? Or like, were you going to church? Like, tell me about that. So I actually came to the Lord at three years old. I had known Jesus since I was three years old at one of my grandmother's churches. And I was speaking in tongues and raising my hand, worshiping since I was three years old. And it's interesting that it happened at such a young age because I feel as though the Holy Spirit had to have given me that encounter in order for me to still be alive today. Mm. Had I not actually had faith in the Lord and actually really believed in this imaginary best friend that I had, 
I literally wouldn't, I, I don't think that I would be here today. God has had, he had to carry me through all of the things that I went through. That's interesting. Like, what do you say? Because like other people would say, well, if God was truly real in your life or if God was real, period, mm -hmm. he wouldn't have allowed this little young girl to go through all that. You know, Lataris, and I said the same thing. Because we all, at some point in time, question our faith. Right. We all, at some point in time, look at our circumstances and we go, God, where are you? Right. What are you doing? Especially when you go through trauma after trauma after trauma, and it just feels like it is never going to stop. Because at this point in my life, it was like I was not getting a breather. I, I had zero room to breathe and to actually like experience normalcy. And so I did come to a point in time in my life in, in my late teenage years where I was so angry with God. I knew he was there, but it was just like, why do I keep going through this? I was in 13 foster homes. Letaris, only one out of 13 was suitable for a child. One home out of 13. And it was a Mormon lady named Norma Hernandez from the Dominican Republic, single woman. She was the only home that was healthy. Out of 13 homes. So we, what, what, what were you experiencing in the other homes? We, one of our, our uh, foster uh, brothers or the, the, the child of, of uh, one of the foster moms tried to shoot all of us in the home. We held, got held hostage. Police had to come in and make sure that we were okay. Listen, what I'm telling you, the people, listen, the level of trauma, complex PTSD is what I, you know, was experiencing. We had a home where a father came out of jail or out of prison. He beat his, his children in front of us. So we had to watch that and the way he treated his wife. Um, a home where one of the foster parents was, you know, they were swingers. And unfortunately, some of the kids had to participate in some of the things. So we had to be removed from there. Uh, just stuff after, it was, it was a lot, okay? Foster parent died in front of us just... A lot of crazy things, Lataris, a lot of crazy things. And so um, I, I don't, I never got to really see full goodness. You know, the, the, my, my American dream and the picture perfect uh, vision that I had of America, or what I thought I was going to have was completely shattered. It was, yeah. <laughs> so. So when did you, when did the abuse and rape and trafficking and, prostitution when did that stop at what age it pretty much stopped at 16 and a half when I finally got taken away from my dad for the last time and what made them finally take <laughs> you away um him beating me really bad and locking me up in the home and I remember I had a, a, a neighbor who knew that there was something off with me and my dad but she just always kind of was just like <sighs> if you ever need anything you know like just it was this awkward thing, like where she's she doesn't want to say anything because she's not really quite sure. Right. But her instinct is like, yeah, it's something ain't right. Um, and so he had beaten me really, really bad. Um <laughs> and um locked me up in the room. I was not allowed to go anywhere, couldn't do anything. Um and I felt that courage to run again, you know. And so I Oh God, sorry. Um, no, this no, I apologize, <laughs> nothing. Mm. Um. So I felt the courage to run again that day, and I just ran straight to her house and went to her back door, slid open her back door. Um, she and I are friends on Facebook, and it's just I literally thank God for her all the time because. 
my dad came running after me that day so quickly. And had, had we not locked the door and called the police immediately, he would have gotten me and I would not be alive today. And so by the grace of God, she had her back door open and the police came pretty fast. And so we were able to um, explain to them what happened and the fact that he had been beating me and things. And so um, they put me in foster home again, you know, and so that was that the end of me went to foster care till I turned 18 and I didn't see my dad went to court. Of course, he got put in prison for a little bit for the uh, uh, physical and domestic violence and stuff for, but a little, for a little bit for a little bit. Yeah. Um, Cause I wouldn't testify against him for you every, it was too much. My dad represented himself. <laughs> yeah. He is that much of a narcissist. He represented himself and I was so intimidated and so scared and I didn't want to, you know, that would be, that is crazy because yeah. now he's questioning you. Exactly. That's exactly. the most brilliant, narcissistic it, tactic ever. It was ever. the most disgusting thing that I ever saw. And I didn't realize, so I came out with my uh, my court at Latham, that he was the one who was going to be asking me questions. And so I froze immediately. And, of course, they were going to put him in jail for the, the physical violence because we had pictures. I've been in the hospital for several days, like, you know, he could they could get him on that but i was like i'm not going to sit here and answer these questions from this man so i literally was like i can't why do this. would they even i guess uh, he has the right he to has do the right to he do has that every right to represent himself God. yeah yep so that was that um Ooh, Lord yeah i end up uh in the in another foster home of course they weren't healthy but my goal was really to just, I'm going to be Age turning 18. Yeah, I, I just need to get out of this whole system, be done with it. And so I started running track um, in high school. Um, a track, you know, uh, coach was just like, you you need to run, you, you need to do something and you're whatever. So he invested in me and just kind of like watched him and his wife. They watched me run. And, and so I did a great job and they were like, you need to go into college, start with community college and then try to get scholarships for to run full time, you know, um, and get a full scholarship, essentially. And so um, I graduated, went straight to community college, and ran for an amazing team. We did great, won state championships, and I, you know, was doing really, really well, doing well in school. Um, I had essentially used track to kind of not think about my past because all I knew was I'm going to run, I'm going to become an attorney, I'm going to help women who've gone through things like me, and that's what's going to happen, you know. And so I just tried not to think about my past. Well, Shortly after um, <laughs> uh, aging out the system and all that type of stuff, I met my ex-husband. Yeah. And take us through that. First of all, think about the metaphor of you running track and you trying to escape your past. That's mm. just. Listen. That's just cinematic in and of itself. That's mm -hmm. some. I've been running my entire life from pain. And then you met your ex-husband. Yeah. And I, how old were you when you met him? I was 19 years old. 19, and you got married at what age? 21. 21. Mm -hmm. You were married for how many years? Four years. And when you talk about your ex-husband, what is the pain attached to that? Hmm. The pain of thinking that you are actually going to have a healthy and normal family, but then walking back into the same dysfunction that you left. Such as? Well, um, my ex-husband, when we met, thought he was just an amazing guy. I mean, we quote unquote fell in love, which I tell people stop falling in love with people because <laughs> you'll fall right out of it, you know. And so um, we uh, we were doing great at first. Um, he had gone to the uh, to 
he was also in the military, of course, right? right. Yeah. So the, the crazy thing is that I had not really gone through full healing for my past, right? Because right? I was still running for my past. And so I essentially met a man who mirrored my, a lot of exactly. my dad's uh, behavior, but he was just a covert narcissist. My dad yeah. was just out there. He will tell you about yourself. But this man was a little bit different. So, and then it, for me, I was so angry at black men, right? That I went and married, I went the complete opposite way. I thought, I am now safe, things are going to be fine, blah, blah, blah. Here I am marrying to a racist family. And with a man who, you know, just has a porn addiction and, you know, like, you've got to... It, it was a recipe for disaster from the beginning. Someone who's gone through the type of sexual abuse that I've gone through marrying someone who has a porn addiction and is a covert narcissist. Like, that's just horrible. And so um, while in my marriage, uh, we... You know, we got married. Um, I um, ended up having my son, Aiden, a sweet little boy. Yeah. But prior to, to yes, he's such a sweet kid. Prior, prior to me, um, to us actually getting married, because we were engaged for two years, I was experiencing some things that were not very healthy, right? So um, I ended up working at a strip club, didn't realize that I was going to be doing that. Right. <laughs> um, right. And got pimped for several months. Can so much shame that I couldn't even tell my ex-husband, uh, my ex-husband when he came back home, like, how do I tell you that me, your soon to be bride is, has been doing all these things. Like couldn't tell him that. And so, um, we get married and here we are with, with a child and he is doing all these things that are very unhealthy. We're swinging. Yeah. We are, you know, participating in things that are just so unhealthy and he wants me to watch porn and I'm just kind of like, do you not see how painful this is for me? I'm not enjoying this. And I found myself having to be drunk all the time, like literally drunk all the time in order to be able to even have sex, to be able to enjoy all of that type of stuff. And so um, that was a lot of my life, me being drunk as heck <laughs> to survive and to numb the pain and to be able to engage in a lot of the things that we did. And it was not all the time, but it's just, even when if it happened one time, the entire marriage, that was enough to of just course. re-traumatize me. Oh right. God. And so, um, I didn't have any friends here, uh, here in Texas. I moved here to Texas to be with him. So all of my friends were his friends. And so, um, it was just a very unhealthy relationship. I had zero family. Obviously my family's all in Europe and, and in Africa, um, and in Cameroon. And so I had, I had no support system. I gave up all my stuff for track and I was a stay at home wife now. Right. And so it was just, again, this, this perfect storm of me sort of, um, being in a, in an abusive relationship, but it's not, it didn't look like abuse to the rest of the world. It was sexually abusive and, um, and emotionally abusive. And I was a, a, the abuser at times as well, taking, taking my anger on him, fighting with him all the time, yelling at him, emasculating him because, you know, there's no reason why I should have done that. But at the end of the day, I'm carrying all of this pain of and this person is not making my pain any easier. So the easiest target for me to release all this is anger him. on is him. And so we were just a perfect storm of toxicity. And so when we talk about trauma bonding, I was in the, the best trauma bonded relationship that you can put on lifetime. It was, it was awful. He didn't think that he had any issues. And so there was nothing for him to work on. No, most narcissists are not going to think that No. when he has a, 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 had a father who, you know, slept with prostitutes all the time. 
that he had to watch that. Mm. But he never thought there was anything wrong with that. So think about all of the, the sixth cycle, right? How we even ended up together. He thought that this was normal somewhere in his mind, you know? And so that's so, that. So you divorced him. What, 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 what made you say enough is enough? I'm getting you know, the crazy thing is I technically didn't want the divorce because I had a firm belief in my mind that if you're a believer, you just don't get divorced. Yes, right. there's a thing that, but I'm like, Elsa, you've done enough craziness in this marriage. You can't, you can't even throw a stone at him. Right? right. But we were at a point where we felt like we we're both working on our, on our relationship. And so I had put all my trust back in him and we were working things out. And then I find out that he's cheating on me. He ended up marrying the woman who he cheated on me with, but find out that he's cheating on me. And for me, I gave him an ultimatum. We either go to counseling and go to therapy or you file for divorce and I'm giving you three weeks. That's what I told him. You have three weeks to either file for divorce or for us to go to counseling. And he didn't want to go to counseling because, again, he never thought anything was wrong with him. And so the day before the three weeks was over, I got served the paperwork. And then the craziness and the fight began for our possessions, for our child, um, just for everything. Yeah. All right. So now you're going through divorce. You overcome it. You come out of that situation. Where is the light? Where did light begin to enter into your life? At what age and at what point? What, what was this road to Damascus moment in your life? The light began to come when I went through my divorce. In the thick, in the middle of that. What happened? I just reconnected with the Lord in a way that I never thought that I ever would. I, began, I had no one else to rely on right, but him. right. I mean, he had stripped away my family. Not really, you know, but yeah. I didn't have family. I didn't have my child at the time. That's a whole other story. Yeah. I had nothing. Yes. And so I had no one else to go to but God. <laughs> and so I literally, when I say I poured myself in the church, that's all I did. Because <laughs> when I got divorced, I had a little bit of a, of a job, but at the time I had no money because he everything was under his name the home was in his name the car was in his name I had nothing so I was homeless for a little bit of time and had to hop around people's houses and places to try to stay and you know it was what it was but God was my rock in this time so I spent about four to five days a week at church just whatever activities churches had I was there I participated and poured and in that moment in those that time period God just met me in a beautiful way that I cannot even, um, I can, I still can't explain it, but I was at a conference and I remember just saying, I want to experience love like I've never experienced it before because this is a time in my life when literally it feels as though no one loves me and I'm never going to ever actually, sorry, I'm never going to actually like feel normal or have a good life or feel what it's like to be validated, to be seen, to be loved, to be taken care of. And the light of God met me in such a beautiful way. And I received his love. I don't know how to describe it, Terrace, but I saw different sorts of like pictures of what he looks like and feels like. And he just met me differently. And so I rededicated my life to him and just decided like, 
this is what I'm going to do for the rest of my life. <laughs> like, I'm going to pursue him just as much as he pursued me my entire life. Just as much as he, he showed me even, like, the times when he was protecting my mind. So I didn't have a lot of memories from my, from the things that happened. Literally couldn't even, didn't even remember that I had only been at that home for three to six months till like I started going through my healing process. Because I think that if God would have allowed me to have some of the memories that I did from, from my past, there's no way I could have survived, especially not when I was going through my divorce. But he started to show me the way he had preserved me and kept me. The times when certain, certain things were supposed to happen, when I was driving home drunk a lot of the times, the times where he literally showed me that angels were driving me back home. Yeah. Just crazy things. And Ooh. when you experience stuff like that, Latarius, you cannot deny the presence yeah. of God and you cannot not walk in his light and his goodness and choose to serve him. Yeah. You yeah. just can't do it. Yeah. And yeah. so, yeah. Before we did this uh, episode, you said, Latares, can we just spend a little moment <laughs> worshiping? What does worship do for you? Uh, <laughs> it connects me to God in a way that nothing else does. <laughs> yeah, whenever I'm feeling triggered or thinking of family and, and loss and things that I just wish that I had or had not experienced, I just connect with him in worship. Whatever song he leads me to, I just I just worship him, and it's healing. It it does a lot. <laughs> so, I want you to say something to male and female perpetrators who violate um, males and females. Um, what would you say to them right now? Oh. That they are forgiven. They're forgiven. You know, what I had to come to realize was that every single person that inflicts harm and abuse on other people, they've experienced it as well. My dad was abused as a child. He went through a lot of pain as a child. And so what he acted out was the, de the demons essentially that were tormenting him. And so how can I not have sorrow and pity for a person like that who has never had the opportunity to truly feel what love feels like, to truly feel what it's like to be validated and to be cared for and to experience the love of God? How can I not have pity for people like that? And so while I, I, I'm, I'm angry and frustrated that the things that happened to me happened, I cannot help but to tell them that they're forgiven and that like I'm praying for them and that they need to just continue to seek God in whatever capacity they can possibly do. What would you say to uh, victims of sexual assault? That it was never God's plan for them. It was never God's plan for them. I think too often when we go through the levels of pain that I describe, people think that, well, God, he must have done this because he wanted something, you know, out of my life or whatever, or because he doesn't love me or whatever it is. We, we blame God for all these things, but it is choice and free will that allows these things to happen. And we could say, well, he shouldn't have given us free will, but how can you possibly love when you don't have free will to do so? Mm. And so 
I had to stop blaming God for the things that other people had the choice to not do. Mm. That man didn't need to pimp me. My dad didn't need to beat me. He didn't need to molest me. These foster parents didn't need to just take that check and then treat us and, and lock up food and do all these crazy things. They didn't need to do that. My ex-husband could have chosen to choose me and, and just like us be intimate than to choose all the things that he was watching. A lot of different things. And so instead of us blaming God for our experiences, we have to partner with him to really see what we were truly created to be and to do before the enemy came and essentially marked us to be in pain. And lastly, what would you say to the general public in becoming better aware, since this is Sexual Abuse Awareness Month, what would you say to help us become more aware of sexual abuse? You know, one of the very first things I'm going to say is this. That little girl that people are calling, oh, she's a hoe, she's being nasty and fast, stop that. Because that girl is going through something in her home or outside of her home that you're not aware of. 100%. And it makes me so angry when I see people call women hoes and all these different things. And it's like, do you know what she's been through? Do you know her or his story? Do you know why he's just out there sleeping around and being crazy? Do you know? You don't. And so we have to first stop labeling people and stop calling people out of their names and start seeing them for who God sees them. Yeah. We have to ask God, how do you see that person, especially when we feel some kind of way about a person yeah. because of their behavior? Ask God to show you what he, what he sees in them. Stop labeling people. The second thing is open your eyes. I think too often we are so busy minding our own business that we don't care to see what's happening around us. Yes. Yes. It makes me so sick and I and that we are not connect so connected with one another that we can't see when a brother or sister is struggling or something is happening around us. We're so self-centered as a society. And you know, with my friends I'm very intentional. If I'm if you're my friend, I'm going to be all up in your business. Not sure it's not do. because I So sure <laughs> do. Sure sure yes. She should have no concern about who I'm sleeping with if I am sleeping with somebody. But on the way going to church one day, she said, Latares, are you are you practicing abstinence? I said, absolutely not. How can you not be practicing abstinence? You're a Christian. I said, because I'm a Christian, not practicing abstinence. Okay. Mm -hmm. No, no. Uh -uh, uh -uh. I'm going to pray. She went, she went into a Cameroonian accent. <laughs> I'm going to pray that, 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 that God convicts your heart. He's going to convict your heart. That's what he's going to do. I said, listen, <laughs> Pastor Conway ain't going to say nothing to me in this church service that's, that I haven't heard before. I'm all right. And then I got the phone with her, and then she started praying, and then Pastor Conway stopped in the middle of service and convicted me. Mm -hmm. And um, it took about a year for me to come under the submission of what God was calling me too and that whole journey was just so orchestrated because guys a gentleman and so he didn't say hey stop doing this he exactly. let me do what i did and then in december he said now come to me mm -hmm. and i said yes father yeah. uh and of course and that whole episode has been beautifully played out in uh, a vow to abstinence but i just want to thank you in front of the the world for um calling me to the carpet and the Bible says iron sharpens iron. And I thank you for being the iron that sharpened me, that, that, that interceded on my behalf, that called the, the man out of the boy. Mm. And you called the man, you summoned the boy, you summoned the man out of the boy and said, Lazarus, come forth. You're mm. walking as a dead man right now. And I see greatness in you. And the greatness in you is, is, 
you you have some so so much value in you that you shouldn't be just casting your pearls among swine. Right. And um, I thank you for that. I truly, truly thank you for that um, because I believe that you have a special anointing over that. And um, you were talking about how many years you've been walking this walk of abstinence, and how long has it been now? <laughs> Too long. <laughs> I am. I am ready. Anyone? Any takers? Any, Any takers? takers? Any takers? Anybody want to put a ring on it? I, I'm ready. It's been too long. Let's too long. Like what? How many years was it? It's going on seven years. I remember you said well, seven years. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. 2013. So. Walking this walk, and we're going to wrap up. What has that done for you? Because God, now you're operating in the spirit of abstinence after having such a tumultuous. Uh, where sex has been so painful to you and very dark, what does this walk of abstinence mean to you? It allowed me to heal. It allowed me to not no no longer allow use my body to get my needs met or to really. It wasn't even for me to get my needs met. Right. It was really to Serve let man. other people have whatever they wanted. Right. Because I, I I sometimes tell people that I still haven't. No man has ever made me orgasm ever. And it's because, like, I mean, I don't, I've never really enjoyed sex. Right. Because I've never felt safe enough with a person to be able to do that. Right. And so I've done a lot of acting my life, you know? And so what, choosing to continue to practice abstinence, especially in times when I'm just like, Elsa, you need something, you need companionship. It's helped me to no, not, first of all, not re-traumatize myself, right. but to also not awaken something that I know would, will get me to start just sleeping around, right? right? Like, I know that be, because of the spiritual stuff that I've had to experience sexually, that the minute I open that door, it gets me back to a place where I'm just doing a bunch of things that I should not be doing. How can people connect with you on Instagram? You're, you're uh, active. Do you respond to... DMs and stuff yeah. on Instagram. Uh, give people your your IG. Um, it is at I am Elsa Christie. I am Elsa Christie. I'll drop that um, on the screen. Elsa, let me just tell you this. Thank you so much for uh, for showing up as your lit self. I mean, it's I would never even pretend that I could even imagine what it feels like to have gone through what you've gone through. And the whole time that you're talking, I have to compartmentalize listening to you. And I go, cause the first thing I see is my daughter. I just keep seeing my daughter flash mm-hmm. in front of my face. And I, and one of the biggest things that I always like prayed, I said, God, please don't let nobody violate my daughter. Mm-hmm. And that was always a prayer that I prayed at 18 years old, uh, as her mom was dating different guys or whatnot. And I'll be like, God, please, Please don't let nothing happen to it. Cause I just don't know what I would have done. Right. And, um, and the whole time you're talking in this, this, the way your father uncovered you and just sold you to the wolves. Heck he was the wolf. Um, it just, I, I have to close my eyes every time you're talking and I'll go, okay, this is our story. This is our journey. But I just keep seeing my daughter flash be- before my eyes. Right. Um, but the amazing thing about it is that how you and I got connected a couple of years ago, I was having a uh, karaoke game night and um, we just went live on Facebook mm-hmm. and you were like, where are y'all at? I want to come. And I said, come. It was yeah. like, what, 10, 11 o'clock at yeah, night? I was doing what I always do at home, doing absolutely nothing. <laughs> on a Friday night. On a Friday night. 
You're a single woman, you know, very young and ripe, and you're sitting at home doing absolutely nothing. I was, I was like, I'm going to go. I'm going to go spend some time with these humans. And so. you came, and what happened that night? I had an amazing time. And we end up worshiping me, you, till like three o'clock in the morning. Yeah, me, you, and I think who else was there? Raven or somebody? It was. It was. It, it was, was beautiful. It was beautiful. We just had a worship moment all the way to three o'clock in the morning. It was absolutely beautiful. Everybody else to end up leaving. It was like three three of us, and we just sat and just sang worship song. Mm-hmm. It was so beautiful night. and pure and amazing. When I said that <laughs> was the most beautiful thing to just be in the presence of God, like with and at that you're a total stranger. Like I didn't yeah. even. No, you could have been a crazy person showing <laughs> right. up at my studio. <laughs> yeah, it'd be just like, kidding. Lord. And I was just like, I said, come on. And you yeah. came and I was like, all right, this is really, really dope. Uh, and, I, and I recognize how everything happens for a reason. It does. Nothing it, is a coincidence. Nothing. Though. Because you just so happened seeing that live. I didn't even know you. I didn't, I didn't even know you followed me. I didn't know mm-hmm. n- nothing. And for you to see that live and for you to come, that was in 2019. Mm-hmm. And then... That was on New Year's Day, wasn't it? Didn't I yes, do that? It was like New, New Year's Eve or something. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that was in 2019. And then in 2020, guy uses you to speak to me and say, hey, get your act together. Right. You know, it's just, God is just dope like that. Yes. But uh, listen, again, thank you so much for showing up on the Dear Future Wifey podcast. I know this may have been extremely hard for people to listen to, but. Uh, I have to give a voice to the the voiceless girl who believes no one is listening. And and the reason why is because we don't want to listen. It's too hard for us to listen because when we listen, now we are held accountable to try to do something. So we don't want to do anything. So it's better just to put our hands over our ears and just ignore it. But I will not ignore this. Um, And it's not just we're going to give attention to it. Uh, in April because it's Sexual Abuse Awareness Month, but we're going to keep our eyes wide open. Let me tell you this, too, before I let you go, is that I never thought the responses that you gave to each of uh, those three uh, questions that I asked that you would respond like that. And your first response when you said you're forgiven, I was like, I thought you were going to say, hey, make sure you don't do this. You're violating. You don't have the right yeah. to, to, to another woman's body. If blah, 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 blah. I thought you was going to go on that thing, and you just straight up said you are forgiven. It's what the father wants for them. So if I, if I'm choosing to walk in his likeness, then I would want the exact same thing. And if I don't pray for my enemies and those who abuse me and persecute me, what change is actually going to happen in this world? Too often we're so focused on getting revenge and justice when we really need to be asking God to change a person's heart. And so every single experience that I've had, the people who have violated me and done things that are wrong against me, even the things that I've done to others, it's been important for me to go, Elsa, how does God see the situation? And what does he actually want? What is his will in this? And his will has always been to restore even the people who perpetrate harm on others. And there it is. Thank you, Elsa, for joining us on the Dear Future Wifey podcast. You have been the biggest blessing. Thank you so much. Discover. Uncover. Recover love with the new Dear Future Collection. The journey starts from within. Let your inner thoughts find freedom on the pages of this richly hued Dear Future Blue Sapphire Edition Genuine Leather Journal. It features a cross-stitched spine and luxurious cording to bind your deepest insights. 
A great accompaniment is the Dear Future Luxury Bamboo Fountain Pen. There's nothing more intentional than the writing process of a fountain pen. This is an elegant writing work of art. Join the thriving community of fountain pen enthusiasts and purchase one today. These exclusive items and more are available at dearfuturewifey.com. If you've experienced sexual assault, sexual abuse, molestation, my heart goes out to you. Heavenly Father, I lift them up right now in the name of Jesus. I ask that you heal their heart. I ask that you touch their mind. And God, I ask that you begin to heal them from the thoughts, the flashbacks, the sleepless nights, the night terrors, in the name of Jesus. Lord, if they're struggling with their value, God, I ask right now in the name of Jesus for you to wrap your loving arms around them and squeeze out all the insecurities, all the feelings of low self-worth. In the name of Jesus, cover them with your glory, cover them with your love, cover them with your affection. God, I lift up the perpetrator. I ask that you begin to change their hearts, change their mind. Let them feel the brevity of the, the pain that they've caused. In the name of Jesus, heal them, God. They were violated in their past. Heal them from the pain of that. Allow them to go through counseling and therapy. Change their hearts and minds. And God will be so careful to give you the praise, the glory, and the adoration because you are still God. And we thank you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Dear future wifey, This month is Sexual Abuse Awareness Month. The disheartening statistic of one in five women having the experience of sexual assault increases my sensitivity towards honoring your body. I have no idea of what you've overcome. If you are unfortunately in the 20% of queens whose gift was stolen, I will spend the rest of my life humbly submitted to my Savior as he guides me and honoring your body so deeply it brings about internal healing baby you are not damaged goods in my eyes your appraisal went up because you are an overcomer the devil knew you were so valuable so priceless so remarkable so desirable he resulted to stealing your crown but he didn't win he only got away with a few jewels because baby you are the crown Proverbs 12, 4 states, a wife of noble character is her husband's crown. You see, your value is not attached to what's between your legs. You are so much greater than just becoming the pleasure tool of a man. You're witty, you're fun, intelligent, powerful, caring, thoughtful, giving, nurturing, loving, kind, intuitive, beautiful. And your vessel, your God-sculpted body is just a bonus. I salute you, queen. 
I salute you, Queen, for walking in the power of forgiveness and healing from the trauma. People will overcome by the word of your testimony and by the blood of the Lamb. I love you. Your future hubby. Thank you for listening to the Dear Future Wifey podcast. Remember, be lit. Live intentionally and transparently. And don't stop loving. Make sure to subscribe to our Dear Future Wifey YouTube channel. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. We welcome your support. Simply share our podcast with your friends and family.